0: Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Does anybody actually know, 11 or down, what that is a picture of? Anybody? 11 or down. We really are not used to seeing them in this state. Are you 11? Hannah, are you 11? Fionn, how old are you? Do you know the answer? You were bouncing, you were excited? Hannah, oh, Cambria, have you? Is that what you thought, Hannah? Yeah. Is that what you thought at the back of your head, a turkey? I think Cambria might have had some help there. I believe Hannah, if she'd have known that. Yeah, they're turkeys. We're not really used to seeing them like that. Um, question. What should you do, or what do we normally think of doing, with one of those? Eating it. I mean, if you faced it like that, you wouldn't much fancy eating it, would you? Um, perhaps, actually, the thing that you do most likely is run away from it. Um, we eat turkeys generally at Christmas time. I think some, sometimes people eat them throughout the rest of the year. In America, they tend to eat them in November for a celebration called Thanksgiving. Now, here is a special turkey. Um, it's a long staff. <laughs> that was an inf- and a bird. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. I did. That's good. That's well done. You. That's that's funny. Um, It's a long, 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 long standing tradition that the presidential family in America is presented, not just with one turkey, but with several turkeys by the National Board of Turkey Farmers or something like that. And going back centuries, well, a century or so, the idea being that they would do what most people do and eat the bird that they've been given, kind of like... um, Uh, a nationalised chance for advertising turkey sales at Thanksgiving. You'd give it to the most famous family in the land, and they'd be enjoying turkey, so everybody enjoys turkeys. Only there have been a couple of occasions in the long, short history of America where the presidents didn't actually want to eat the turkeys for some reason. And it wasn't until Ronald Reagan in 1987 did a new tradition start whereby... Those turkeys that were presented to the presidential family weren't eaten, weren't plucked and stuffed and cooked and served at a banquet, but were... Does anybody know what they do to them now, the presidential turkeys? They pardon them. They certainly don't keep them as pets. Who said that, Donna? Um, They don't keep them as pets, no. Otherwise, the White House would be overrun with turkeys by the end of their tenure. They pardon them, Dan. That's exactly right. The tradition has now evolved so that the presidential turkeys receive a special presidential pardon. I wanted to think about pardons this morning, you know, kind of being a judgment or or, or a kind of a future that is hanging over someone, being stayed, being moved away. So I typed in famous pardons and I read down a very long list of people that the presidents had genuinely pardoned. And I thought the turkey was the most interesting example, to be honest with you. Um, So that's what happens. Instead of getting eaten, which is, that's an illustration of turkeys being eaten, you'd be pleased to know, well, for a couple of years anyway, they got sent to go and live in Disney World. (laughs) That is genuinely true. There's a couple of different places that they've been sent. There was 10 years or so where they were sent to take part in the Disney World Thanksgiving parade. So can you imagine that? Born, raised, destined for the dinner plate... The president says, no, I pardon thee, Turkey, off to Disney World for the rest of your life. It sounds quite all right, doesn't it? Um, For a while, they got sent to George Washington's place of birth until they realized George Washington never had turkeys, farmed turkeys on his land, so they had to get rid of all the turkeys. They probably ate them because they wanted that place to be historically accurate. Anyway, we're carrying on. That is all just there to be in the back of our minds of someone who is pardoned, someone who is forgiven in a sense and what should happen to them or would normally happen to them is pardoned and taken away. We're carrying on to Samuel. John said we're in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and um, if you've got a Bible or if you know the stories at all you can glance down. You'll see from the headings and you'll see if you read along that some of it is um, quite disturbing and not the sort of thing that I had planned originally to be preaching on when the kids were in With us this morning. So I will speak in vague and general terms. That's why, if you really want to carry along, I'll say the verses and what have you, and you can grab a Bible there as well. And um, it's a story that deals with pardon. Uh, And it's a story that we're going to see introduces us to a new character in the tales of Samuel. We've met Eli, we've met Samuel, we've met Saul, we've met Jonathan, we've met David. We've met various other people, but there's a new character who is about to burst onto the scene and is going to have quite a large impact on the life of David and the things that happen over the next couple of chapters. And that person is Absalom. Now, you open up chapter 13, you see your headings, you read the story, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is a story about a man called Amnon and his sister called Tamar and the horrendous things that he does to her. But chapter 13, verse 1, I think is really significant in our understanding of that story and why certain things aren't resolved, certain things that we as modern readers would want to know about the outcome of what Amnon does to Tamar, and this is how the story opens. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. It's weird that the story is introduced as a story about Absalom. Um, there are lots of different ways that Tamar and Amnon and what goes on between the two of them could have been introduced to us. And it should feel really, really odd that Absalom is brought up. Now, the next couple of verses kind of explain what happens. Uh, there's a summary at the end that describes what happens as Amnon violating Tamar. So if you want to know the ins and the outs, by all means, read through it. It's pretty horrendous. Um, There's not much to be learned in terms of morality. No one is, the same as last week, there's no one going to read this story and wonder and be curious, are the things that are described right or wrong? Should there be condemnation for what goes on? It's just blatantly obvious. If not from our own culture, from our moral voice, from the law of God, the law of Moses, certain things that have been completely and utterly described as wrong pop up in that chapter, and we know straight away that they are wrong. What we have this story here for is to introduce us to Absalom and what happens in Absalom's life as a result of the thing that goes on between his brother and his sister. I'm going to pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 13. Speaking about Tamar, it says, Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take it to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when the king David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. As I said, you read the story, you're likely to be frustrated that we don't find out more about Tamar and how her situation is resolved. And I'd say that's because it's not really a story about Amnon, it's not really a story about Tamar, it's a story about Absalom, and the catalyst in his life for something that he's going to do next. Um, King David heard all these things, the wrong things, the sinful things, the abominable things that Amnon does, and we'd be right in thinking that the king should respond, that the king should take action. Only verse 21 says it pretty plainly that the king heard all these things and he was very angry, full stop, that no action was taken. Perhaps there was a raising of the voice, perhaps there was a turning over of furniture, but no judgment, no sentence was passed down. Now, if you track the various ways that David is described in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, Um, It changes and it shifts depending on how we should really be thinking of him. And in this next section, he is described time and time and time again as the king, someone who has authority, someone whose duty and privilege it is to rule the nation with justice. And when David's done that, we've highlighted and we've said he's doing a very good thing. You know, at the end of chapter 8, there's that verse, uh, chapter 9 with... um, Jonathan's son, we see him living out justice, righteousness, and these things. He's the king, and he's described as the king. So we're supposed to have these little alarm bells going off saying, ah, well, the king will do something about that shocking behavior that has gone just before. And yet there's no record of that justice here. There's no record of any punishment being given to Amnon. There's no record of any kind of um, recompense There's no um, justice delivered at all. David, films, and nothing more. There are a couple of reasons why that might be the case. Perhaps it's because the sins that have been committed by his son Amnon are so similar to the sins that he'd committed that he would be a hypocrite to weigh in. I mean, I'm tempted to think that's the reason. Perhaps we've seen it before in the life of Eli, and Samuel already, but there's a pattern in 1 and 2 Samuel of parents who just do not confront the sins of their children. They don't deal with them. They turn a blind eye to them and things escalate. Perhaps there's an element of that. But there's certainly supposed to be in our minds now a difference between how Absalom acts and King David, the person who should weigh in with justice and authority and a ruling and a punishment meted out for the sins that have been committed that person just gets angry. Absalom, on the other hand, is being described as neither speaking good nor bad, but but hating Amnon. He keeps his cool, and he keeps his cool for a reason, because he spends two years concocting and planning his revenge. Uh, That's what is described a little bit lower. I'm going to pick it up in verse 28 of chapter 13. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Very similar to the language that David used when he was instructing Joab. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. He stewed on it for two years. Maybe he was stewing and just waiting for an opportunity to strike. Maybe he was waiting for his father to do something about it. But finally, he can take it no more. This man, his stepbrother, has done something so awful to his sister. He takes law into his own hands, and he has him murdered at a feast. And the conclusion of this whole affair is found in verse 34 onwards. Absalom flees. The young man who kept watch, that's in Jerusalem, looked up, uh, uh, saw, and behold, he said, many people were coming from the road behind him, by the side of the mountains. John Adab, one of the people who was there speaking to the king, said, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. Behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly, because they found out that Amnon had been killed. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was confronted about Amnon, since he was comforted about Amnon, since he was dead. So the conclusion of the story is essentially this that Absalom takes vengeance on Amnon for what he has done, but then fearing for his own life, flees elsewhere. Again, it's frustrating a little bit, because we see it as someone at last standing up for what's right. Where's Tamar's justice in this story, unless Absalom acts? And yet there's more to it. Why does he flee? Why does he flee for his life? Why does he run off to a foreign country to live with his uncle? Well, it's because Amnon was the next in line to the throne. And so there's just a little bit more context to the story that what Absalom has done could be seen as a power play for the throne, a power play to be next in line when David dies. Now, when you think about the things which David could and couldn't rule in, the ways that David could pass judgment and not be a hypocrite, here is an area in which he could definitely deliver a verdict. If he couldn't deliver a verdict when it came to um, the sorts of things that he'd done with Bathsheba and Amnon had done with Tamar, he he can speak out against people who take killing others, especially killing those who are on the throne or on their way to the throne into their own hands. Because David's early life is marked with resisting that temptation to kill the person who stands between him and the throne. So it makes sense, perfect sense, that here all of a sudden Absalom has found himself in a scenario where should he go home to Jerusalem, to the palace, to his father, he would be met with justice. I think verse 39 is a pretty heartbreaking verse when you read it in many respects. It says, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. He was comforted about Amnon since he was dead, but the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. There's a tension in the story, or there's like a paradox, really, that David is here wearing two hats. He's one, the king, who's supposed to be administering justice. And if Absalom comes home, the only fair thing is for the death penalty to be um, pronounced over him too, but there's also a father here. And one of the things in this whole section in 2 Samuel that we should be picking up on is that David is someone who loves and loves deeply. All of his children he cares for. And he weeps. He weeps for Absalom now departed as if he had lost not just one child, but two children. So, enter Joab. Verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, the son of Zehua, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. You know, Joab, David's right-hand man, he's close enough to know what's going on in David's mind, also what's going on in David's heart. He knows that the king is struggling with this, that he ha- that he's devastated, not just to have lost Amnon, but to have lost Absalom as well. So he starts to concoct his own plan, which is very much in the same vein as Nathan in last week's passages when Nathan came and told David a parable in order to show and to reveal to David his own sin. Joab's plan is similar. He sends a woman with a story to help David to process and to figure out how it is that he, the king, can call his son to come home. The story involves a woman who is a widow. She has two sons, one of whom kills the other, and everybody is expecting justice to be done for the murderer themselves to be put to death. She begs David. She begs David to um, issue a decree that that son, her only remaining son, the only person who can carry on her family name, will not be touched. She basically makes the argument, look, I know the letter of the law is this, But surely the spirit of the law is to preserve a heritage, to preserve a family line for me and for my husband. And if the letter of the law is carried out, then the spirit of the law will be defeated. David sees that. He says, fine, your your, your son, I pronounce it. I make this royal decree. Your child will be safe. She goes a step further. She says, I don't just want you to promise it. I want you to promise it on the name of the Lord. I want you to make this decree invoking Yahweh's name. Please let the king invoke the name of the Lord, she says in verse 11, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. And he, David says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Like, she's come and she's helped him to see that justice is sometimes a a, a tricky thing to administer. That sometimes just having rules and regulations needs interpretation, understanding why those laws exist in the first place, and to help him to see that actually there can be a way forward in his situation where he, as the king, should execute justice on Absalom, but he, as a father, wants to embrace his son again. She follows up, verse 13. If that's the case, if that's the case in my family situation, and you can see the justice there, preserving this son, staying the execution, pardoning him for the sake of my family line, she says, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God, as in the opposite of that? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We all must die. We are all like water spilled on the ground which can't be gathered up again. God will not take away life. He, the Lord whose name you have invoked, devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. God is a way, God is a one who makes a way for outcasts, the banished, those with impending judgments hanging over them to be brought back in. And at last, through this story, through this enacted parable, if you like, David gets it. He realises that there is a way forward, that the Lord would have not more bloodshed, but would have forgiveness and pardon in this situation. So, not only does he rule on her situation, but he rules on Absalom's situation as well. Verse 21, the king says to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. Verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Pardon has been achieved. The king has spoken, he is forgiven. The the cleaver of justice that was hanging over Absalom's head is refused. Like those turkeys on the White House lawn, it's gone, it's dealt with. He can live out his days, not in Disney World or on George Washington's estate, but in the city of David, Jerusalem. But there's still more to the story. Verse 24. This is what the king says. Let him, Absalom, dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Let's not forget that this isn't just a criminal who's received a pardon, but this is the king's son who's supposed to have been forgiven. Honestly, answers on a postcard if you can figure this out. I'm not 100% sure why David keeps Absalom at arm's length. It doesn't feel to me like he's really pardoned him. It doesn't feel to me like he's really forgiven him. Absalom has the same sort of um, relationship now with his father, the king, as he did miles away in another nation. He's back but he's not really home. He's a forgiven citizen, but he's not a child in his father's house anymore. And after two full years of living that sort of existence, without, it says in verse 28, coming into the king's presence, if you've got an NIV, it'll say, without seeing the king's face, Absalom articulates something similar to what Moses articulated in the book of Exodus. He says it like this in verse 32. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. I might as well have stayed with my uncle. There's no point in receiving this pardon. There's no point in coming to the city of David unless I get to spend time with my dad, with my father, unless I get to see him and enjoy him and all of that. Moses had expressed it like this, didn't he? When God was passing judgment over the people of Israel for their sin, And God said, I won't destroy you. I'll let you go to the promised land, but my presence will not go with you. Moses said, what would be the point in that? What on earth would be the point of being in the right place, kind of, but not being with our God? That would be awful. That would be just as bad as never getting there at all. And Absalom says the same. He says, I've come back, and I genuinely don't see the point of it. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So he calls Joab. Joab comes. He makes his case to Joab. Joab goes back to the king. And this is what we read. This is how the story actually finishes. Verse 33. Joab goes to the king and he tells him all that he's discussed. And so David summons Absalom. And Absalom comes to the king and he bows himself on his face on the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Chapters 13 starts with Absalom. Chapter 14 finishes with Absalom. Absalom. And it's the story of how someone who is banished and sent away for whatever reason is both pardoned and reconciled with their father. The story isn't resolved until those very final verses, until Absalom isn't just home in the city, but he's home with his king, the father, the one who is supposed to be administering justice, kissing him. Now, that's more than just pardon, isn't it? And that's what I want us to see this morning in the few more months we've got left, is that what's being described here isn't just a story of forgiveness and pardon. It isn't just those turkeys avoiding getting the chop on the White House lawn, but it's going back to where they're supposed to be. It's going back to their farm. It's going back to the hands of the people who have reared them and fed them since they were little suckling chicks. I don't know the life cycle of a turkey very well. But the story is only finished, not when the forgiveness is offered and the pardon is offered, but when David, the one who has the crown, clasps Absalom with both hands, draws him near, and gives him that familial kiss. So what is that showing us? Well, first of all, it's a great way of us seeing how stories are useful in communicating truth. We saw it with Nathan going to David. In order to get David to see his own sin, he didn't just accuse him and point it out to him and say, I found you out. He told him a story to help David process things at his own speed and on his own level to get that aha moment that he needs to truly comprehend what he'd done wrong. But in exactly the same way, Joab and the lady, they come to David and they use a story to help David to see the gray that exists between the black and the white that David could only see before. But I think this is an amazing example of a passage of scripture, which we aren't necessarily supposed to draw lessons out of the mechanics of, but it's supposed to help us to see and to process something of a bigger truth. Now, so often we speak of the story of the Bible of, as one of forgiveness, of pardon, of guilty people being um, pardoned. Um, guilty people being declared innocent, and it is definitely that. You see that happens in the life of Absalom in the story, and you see that throughout the pages of Scripture, that God is in the business of achieving forgiveness, achieving a, a change in our, like, legal status. But what this story helps us to see and helps us to process and helps us to walk through ourselves is that that is not the end of the story, that forgiveness is is just the first step on a longer journey. That actually, the good news about Jesus is only really good news when we can turn to our Father, our Heavenly Father, and know that similar loving embrace as Absalom felt. That the cross, that the gospel, that everything we declare in Christianity isn't just about forgiveness, but it's about reconciliation too. Now, let me make the point, forgiveness is absolutely vital. No matter how much David would have wanted to hug his son, to kiss his son, to sit down and to feast with his son, if he hadn't have issued the pardon to begin with, justice would have demanded that Absalom be killed. Forgiveness is absolutely vital in this story, and it's absolutely vital in our story too. All of us are guilty. All of us are like sheep that have gone astray. All of us are people who could speak the words that David spoke in Psalm 51, surely I'm sinful for my mother's womb, cleanse me with hyssop. We need to be made clean. We need to be taken from guilt to innocence. That is absolutely paramount because nothing else can happen until that has happened. But it's merely stage one, step one, on a far more fantastic story and a far more fantastic journey. Hannah read to us a a snippet from Colossians chapter one at the start. No, she didn't. Elan did. Elan read to us. And it spoke about Jesus being the one through whom God was reconciling all things to himself. For in him, that is Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him... God reconciled himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. See if you can kind of pick out the words in this next section, which speak of pardon and forgiveness, but further of the reuniting. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Can you see how the two are mingled together? And I hope the story of Absalom, go home, read it, chapters 13 and 14 will help you to see that, that there is so much more to the story, that simply receiving pardon, that simply being forgiven, I say simply like it's a small thing, it is no small thing, Is just the start. That what's intended on that journey is for reconciliation. That yes, he has made us holy and blameless and above reproach. Those are forgiveness and pardon words. But it's so that we can be presented as such before him. Get that. That the whole purpose and the whole point of that forgiveness and that pardon is that we can be with a God. We can be with our heavenly father. I wonder how often we consider the good news to be good news that goes that far. How often we're satisfied to live as Absalom lived for two years in Jerusalem. Like not looking over his shoulder, not worrying in that respect, but living away from where he's supposed to be. If that's you this morning, I want to tell you you're not living as God wants. You're not living as the, the heart of the father desires to go out and to be with in the presence. Paul saw this, he understood this, and this is how he challenged the Christians in Corinth to respond. He says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to him, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us a message of reconciliation. That our good news is good news of forgiveness, but it's good news of more than that. And he's been given to us, not just to enjoy ourselves, but to share too. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors. We are heralds. We are witnesses for Christ in this reconciliatory role. Since God is making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. That's what we're instructed to proclaim. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We get to celebrate the gospel week in, week out. We get to rehearse the gospel to ourselves, I hope, daily. At the start of the day, the middle of the day, at the end of the day, however you like to do it, to remind yourselves of the power of the breadth, of the depth, of the height, of the love that God has shown us in Jesus. And my encouragement to you this morning is not to, not to stop partway along the story, not to stop partway along the power of the gospel, not to say this is what is it achieves and no more, but to see in its fullness the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ, that we can be with our Heavenly Father, that the one who we've been separated from formerly by sin, we are embraced now in our um, innocence that Jesus has given us. I want us, not only as we're rehearsing it to ourselves, reminding ourselves what we have in Jesus, I want us to be a people who are declaring that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be a people who don't just go as far as forgiveness and leave it there, but truly share the wonderful news that we have pardon. And reconciliation in Jesus that if we leave people in that in-between state, we've not actually given them the whole story, that we want to be people who enjoy and know everything that it is to be reconciled in Jesus and to know the King, the Father's kiss, on our faces. Don't stop halfway. Don't take that first important step and go no further but journey as Absalom did all the way into the presence of the high king and enjoy the relationship that we were made for. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing to close. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this story. We thank you for stories like it, which help us to walk through, help us to unpack and to see and to to create categories in our mind for what goes on with you and with us. Lord, we confess we are guilty people. We are guilty people who need your forgiveness, and we thank you that in Jesus that forgiveness has been earned. But Lord, help us to see and help us to recognize that we are more than that, that we are image bearers, that we are children of the Most High, that we are supposed to be with you forever. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus we don't just get the pardon and the forgiveness, And the the new address back in Jerusalem. But we get that invitation into the king's throne room. And as we bow before you, Lord God, we are embraced like the children of God that we truly are. Help us to see that story. Help us to figure that story out in our own lives. Help us to rehearse that story as we remind ourselves of everything that we have in Jesus. And help us to be declaring that as we go out and we share as ambassadors as heralds of the good news. That there is forgiveness on offer, but there is embrace as well. That there is cleansing on offer, but there is reconciliation too. That there is a next step of coming and knowing and being known. And that that truly is the good news in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts.